Asian Hustle Network knows how important it is for small business owners to have access to tools and resources that help them thrive, which is why we have partnered with Comcast Rise, a multi-year, multi-faceted initiative launched in October 2020 to help strengthen small businesses hit hard by COVID-19. Qualifying businesses can apply to receive consulting, media and creative production services from Effective, the Advertising Sales Division of Comcast Cable, or technology upgrades from Comcast Business. Comcast Rise is now accepting applications from people of color-owned or women-owned small businesses. Learn more and apply at ComcastRise.com. Hey guys, welcome to the Asian Hustle Network Podcast. My name is Brian. And my name is Maggie. And we interview Asian entrepreneurs around the world to amplify their voices and empower Asians to pursue their dreams and goals. We believe that each person has a message and a unique story from their entrepreneurial journey that they can share with all of us. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode on the Asian Hustle Network podcast. We have Carrie Lai this week. Carrie, so excited to have you on the show. I am such an avid reader on TechCrunch and your story happened to come up yesterday. And I'm like, wait a minute, we're going to have in the podcast tomorrow. So that's complete awesome and perfect timing. And before we dive deep into that, we want to hear more about yourself and your story. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah. So I was born and raised in Los Angeles. You know, parents immigrated here from Taiwan, you know, just loved Southern California, grew up there, went to UCLA. So it didn't go very far, didn't, didn't leave home very far. And then, you know, my first job was really up here in Silicon Valley. You know, I've always been a kid that loved tech. My dad was an aerospace engineer by training, my, my mom, a computer programmer. So a lot of technical engineering in the family. But I think I was really blessed that they never pushed me into, you know, the traditional Asian professions of a doctor a lawyer or an engineer. And so in some sense, my parents were a little bit atypical and, and perhaps even maybe progressive that they really wanted us, my brother and I, to really find our own passions. You know, I remember my dad really young telling me, hey, look, you know, you're going to be working for a long time. And so you should probably find something that you really love to do where it doesn't even feel like you're working. And so uh, it was really good advice. I think that was, I think, very much informed by you know, my parents' experiences in Taiwan, where you kind of have to test into a major and then that ultimately becomes your career. So I really appreciated that. And for me, it was business. You know, I always I tell people I, I love I love business I, ever since I was seven. And I, I really wanted to go into business. So, you know, studied international econ. First job was up here in the Bay Area doing technology investment banking. So for me, that was kind of the blending of both kind of the technology aspect of, you know, what my, my parents influenced me with. And then the business part of, you know, learning finance, you know, taking companies public, helping them with mergers and acquisitions or M&A. And then that experience really led me to venture capital. So did two years of the banking up here in San Francisco. Francisco and then went to IVP, which was, you know, a firm that's been on Sand Hill Road since the 1970s and have funded some really great companies like Twitter and Netflix and Snapchat and others. So just a really, you know, traditional legacy firm. And then really had the opportunity to launch my own fund, having stopped off at Intel Capital and then had a broken fund. And then really through that process, uh, landed on launching Conductive Ventures. So yeah, That's we right. did that in uh, 2017 and, and we just raised Fund 3, as you saw uh, yesterday. So That's amazing. <laughs> That's quite a lot of 
information in such a, in such a short amount of time. And I want to give props to your parents too, because they give you the leeway to pursue any passions that you want. Right. And I feel like a lot of us aren't really given the opportunity to, it's like, this is what you're become. This is what we think you're going to be successful, like successful with. And you have no other choice. Right. I feel like your parents did it right. Right. And I feel like if you let your kid choose their true passion, they're going to do a good job no matter what it is. Right. And if we learn anything nowadays, it's like you can make money with anything that you feel passionate about. It's not just these like hardcore skills you need in order to make money. Right. It's creativity that makes money and, and being passionate about what you do. Yeah. I mean, let's be clear though. Like I wasn't, I wasn't choosing a career like as a male model or, you know, acting. So it wasn't like really going that far off. So I have no idea how my parents might've reacted if I said, I want to become a male model one day. Yeah. I chose business just because I absolutely loved it ever since I was a little kid. And, uh, I think that, yeah, I agree. I mean, I would say looking back my, you know, some of my cousins weren't afforded that opportunity. And, and so I have a lot of cousins who are doctors and engineers and yeah, it's that kind of progressive thinking that I think really helped to lead me down this path. And it's been, I mean, I I tell folks like it's been one of the most fulfilling and and rewarding times in my professional career right now to, you know, see everything kind of come to fruition. Mm -hmm. You know, when you go, when you go off that ledge and you raise, try to raise your first fund, I mean, you are an entrepreneur and I, I don't think a lot of VCs often get the cred that they deserve, which is like, you are starting your own business and you have to go raise capital from people. And it's just as scary and exciting as doing a startup. Yeah, yeah. I, couldn't, I couldn't agree more with that statement, right? I think when you go out there, you're essentially building your own team, you're building your own culture, you're raising money, you're yep. responsible for annual reports, financing, all those things, right? It's basically running a company. Yeah. And out of curiosity, how did you develop your perseverance and grit? At one point in your life, were you developing these skills? Because you know, venture capital isn't easy. Startup life isn't easy, right? And it's, it's a lot more downtime than there is uptime. Right. Yeah. There's a lot of times you look yourself in the mirror, you're like, what am I doing in my life? <laughs> Nothing's working out. And you're like, oh man, how can I push through this? And I'm kind of curious, like, how did you develop that grit and perseverance, not only as a kid, but like, how did you continue to foster that mentality as an adult as well? Yeah. It's a really good question. I would say that the two things. One, I think seeing my parents, you know, coming to this country as immigrants where English was not their first language, I think you you definitely absorb a lot of that first-generation immigrant hustle, for sure. You know, everything from stretching, you know, every single penny to finding the best deals. But a lot of that grit is born out of necessity, right? Because we didn't come as crazy rich Asians here. I mean, my dad told me stories of how you know, he didn't even have a refrigerator when he left Taiwan, you know, didn't own a car and didn't have, you know, gas in the home where you could just flick it on and and start cooking. I mean, that's why my dad doesn't like camping because he was like camping was, that was an everyday occurrence, like having to start stoke a fire to start, you know, cooking. I think the second thing is I grew up as a really overweight child. And I think I just developed really thick skin. You know, I, I think having been made fun of, uh, having a lot of times being that, you know, odd kid who was just really, really fat, but I love sports. So it was kind of this conundrum where I was a pretty decent athlete, but I was fat. So I was always picked last, but I could hit really well. I was pretty fast for how fat I was. And so I loved proving people wrong. And I think that 
what developed over time was this ability to constantly want to prove people wrong. And so my wife will always say, if you want to motivate Carrie as if he wasn't self-motivated enough, just tell him he can't do something or he can't have something and you better watch out. And so I think that to me is what I look for in, in entrepreneurs in the people that we back. Basically, you will come across those times where you're backed into a corner. And a lot of times people are like, well, okay, I give up. And for me, there's just no giving up. Um, you know, either you're going to convince me why I shouldn't do something or I'm going to die trying to figure it out. And I think that's just always been my tactic. And I would say those are kind of the two vectors that I think have really played a significant role in, in why I you know, have so much grit, perseverance, determination. And it's pretty ubiquitous, I think, throughout you know, everything I do in my life. Yeah. And I love that story a lot too. It's, it's so relatable to myself. It's like, I don't take no for an answer and you have to kill me before I give up. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's a, it, you have to develop that mentality. Right. And right. it's also because oftentimes you're going to you're going to have a lot of naysayers around you. Like, Hey, Carrie, you can't do that. Or no, nah, man, it's too hard or is impossible. You, you get, stuff like that all your life right and the people who were able to like set it aside and push past it are the ones who do extraordinary things like yourself right yeah. and again you bring up a really good point too because it's not only a reflection of yourself but other founders that feel the same way right don't let any hold you back like there's always a solution to everything ask yourself how how do i get there instead of like darn i i can't get there right it's just a matter exactly. of using a couple of vocabularies in your mind in order to achieve the next level so i really appreciate yep. that carrie I totally agree. And I'm kind of curious too. So most of our listeners, as you know, are from the age 25 to 40, right? And a lot of people have never been able to like escape their W2 and pursue their passions and dreams or whatever it is. What was your mentality like as a early graduate from college? What was going through your mind? Did you have this intention that one day this is what I want to be? One day I'm going to start my own fund. One day I'm going to start my own company. Has that thought ever occurred to you like in your first couple of years of your career? Absolutely not. I always tell people that in many ways, I'm sort of the accidental entrepreneur. I don't think I ever imagined that I'd be running my own fund. I think my ambitions were much, much smaller. You know, when I landed my first venture role at IVP, I felt as though I had made it. And I thought I would want to stay there forever, to be honest. And it just didn't turn out that way, ultimately. And in many respects, I think a lot of this happens, you know, just through your natural journey where one thing will just lead to another. I can't say that, you know, this was sort of the master plan. You know, I didn't even know what venture capital was when I was in college. So, and I didn't really have the exposure. People always ask me, like, did you have an uncle or, you know, cousin or, you know, older brother that, you know, brought you up? And the answer is simply no. I mean, my parents have, probably not until recently really understood what I do, you know, cause they, this is just something that doesn't really cross an engineer's mind or, you know, programmer's mind ever. And so I didn't have any friends or hookups, you know, people that could really like pull me up and say, you know, you should go pursue this career. I had no idea. I was just fumbling around and really just fortunate and blessed that I had really good people around me particularly roommates who were of the same ambition, the same hustle, the same mind, 
And, you know, watching them succeed in different areas gave me confidence to go and pursue, you know, what I thought was sort of the next step. You know, I'd say like my venture career has been definitely an evolution. I describe it in three parts. The first part is the seven years I spent at IVP, where I was clearly in the back of the seat and I was learning how to do venture. The second part of my career was at Intel Capital, where I felt like I was definitely, you know, in the passenger seat. I got to do my own deals, sit on boards, you know, do really well, but it was only one part of the business, which was investing. And now it's come full circle with this third part of my career, which is failing really badly for a year and a half, trying to raise a fund, which didn't come together. And then really succeeding now with Conductive Ventures over the last five years, where I fully feel like I'm in the driver's seat. And all the things that you talked about, building a brand, you know, choosing the name, raising the capital, hiring people, you know, and while doing the investing, which is, you know, a core piece of it, and, you know, raising capital from limited partners, like all that are different components of the venture business. That's really feeling to me like being in the driver's seat. And then, like you said before, being able to do it in my own way, that's authentically us and not something that was inherited or something that was legacy, you know, simple things like this is the way we've done it for the last 20 years. So we're going to keep doing it this way instead of saying, well, why do we have to go by that way of thinking? We can, we can, it's just us. We just try something new, try something different if it's not working. Yeah. I appreciate your rundown of your, your story and I can't help but draw parallels to how I am too. Right. Cause I think that we are both UC kids yep. and no, 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 no shades in the UC kids, but you don't get that exposure like you do to see how money operates at a higher level. Right. Yep. And to have that connection is almost impossible. Right. If you're not born into it or you're, you know, you don't, you're not well equipped for it. And to make that connection, those connections, I can see, honestly, I read a thesis about your fund, right? And I can see why, why you, you chose that thesis now and how everything links together. And it's crazy because I think that this fund that you created, it's a reflective of who you are and how you became this person, right? Because I think for myself too, like I never imagined myself becoming an entrepreneur ever in my life, right? Just a series of things that happened. You're like, oh, wow why not me? <laughs> right? Why not you start asking yourself like, wait, wait, why not me? And it's very similar to you roommates who became entrepreneurs that I'm like, whoa, if that guy could do it, why can't I can do it? Right. Why can't I do it? And you start pushing yourself to see what you can do and slowly things compound, right? Little wins add up and you're like, you get more and more confident, you dream bigger and bigger. And suddenly you find yourself immensely immersed in these conversations where the dollar amount that you thought were super big a couple of years ago are no longer big. And it just blows your mind, it blows everyone else's mind. And now you think about the world differently about how you, how you can reshape it, right? How you can dictate the future. And that's the best part about starting a venture fund or starting a company is that you do have the power to change the world. Yeah, I echo a lot of what you just said. I think that, you know, when I think back to the last, you know, since 2004, since I've been doing venture, you know, people always ask me, how did you get in? I, I literally just applied. I applied to a lot of firms and, you know, 98 to 99% of them said, no, thank you. And you're right. I, I think about, you know, that cold start problem of how do I make that transition from investment banking to venture capital and without knowing anyone or, you know, having mom and dad help me out. I mean, it was literally just getting out there, getting in front of people, hoping to impress them 
and maybe they give me a shot, just a chance. And, you know, I felt like that in many respects, every step of the way through starting conductive, you know, how do you find limited partners? Well, go to people who like you that you've made money with, and maybe they'll introduce you to a few. And, and from there, maybe if, if they like you, they'll introduce you to their friends. And, and so on and on and on it goes. But I think, you know, when you kind of look at the entirety, the, the body of work, it always starts with that first step. And it leads to something else. So kind of like I said in the very beginning, one thing kind of leads to another. It's not that you can really architect this in any defined way. There's no blueprint necessarily. There's only the one that, you know, becomes your your own. But again, sometimes you don't often see how these dots connect in the moment. But over time, whether that's one, three, five, seven, ten years, then you're like, oh, that's how it all connected. But again, it's not as if in the very beginning you know, there was this master plan and you just have to go. It's not like building an Ikea bookshelf where there's steps one through 20. Right. And that's it. Yeah. That's absolutely agree with that. It's, it always makes a lot more sense looking backwards and tracing how things connected that you realize that, wow, like every single experience you have in life, no matter how good or bad it is, it'll help you become the person that you, that you are today. And yeah. you're going to draw upon these skill sets at different times of your life, whenever you hit a problem too. And that's the crazy thing. So I'm kind of curious, and I know I read your articles on your LinkedIn about the previous funds, yeah. right? not the successful one. <laughs> I mean, all successful, right? Well, your first fund ever and then how it took you such a long time to raise it. Talk about that experience with us. Like, how did you, I know you mentioned that you reached out to a few LPs, have you introduced some LPs, but like walk us through like carry at that time. Like what mistakes did you make? What did you think about the venture world at that time, as you're becoming more of an operator of the full scale type of situation, how'd you overcome your setbacks? Like, how did you make the fun happen? Right. I think most people will be like, I can't raise money. This is too hard. And raising money is not easy. Right. Just to put it out there. It's, just, it's, just, it's a huge, it takes a huge toll on your self-esteem, your time commitment, and you're, you're questioning yourself at every step of the way. So I'm kind of curious, what was the mindset that you had raising the first fund and what were setbacks? You know, when I was about to leave Intel Capital and really step off that ledge and go raise the first fund, which ultimately became Luma Capital Partners, what I was thinking was, man, I have this really strong and amazing investment track record. I have made Intel Capital a ton of money, not to mention IVP in the previous seven years. And I think the next step and the next evolution is to take this, you know, this on the road and hang my own shingle and start my own fund. Like that just kind of felt instinctively like that would be the next step. And I think a lot of Asian Americans can relate to what I'm about to say. I completely thought that given my investment track record, which is basically good grades, you know, strong SAT scores would be enough to successfully raise a fund. That's, that was my mindset. And to be honest, super naive because limited partners don't just invest in people with strong track records. You have to be able to do the whole thing. You, you've got to be able to raise the capital. In a, so in addition to having a strong track record, which I would say is just table stakes, you got to be able to attract capital. You've got to be able to schmooze other LPs to come in. You've got to operate your fund. So LP reporting, audit, 
right? Manage people. You got to show limited partners. You're able to scale because it's, you're not a one man band. Like you have to be able to hire great people that leverage their skills and their talents to help really build an organization, a platform, right? It's not conductive ventures, carry lie. That's it. It's conductive ventures with Carrie lie and Paul Ye and other folks, right. That really make this machine really, really just come to life. And so all those things I didn't know about, but I knocked on the doors of at least 150 LPs traveled, you know, crisscrossing, not only the United States, but also the globe. And at the end of the day, the goal was to raise hundred million. We basically raised 11. So we fell really short of our goal and we didn't, you know, we basically, we had four partners initially and we basically all left and went our separate ways. And so to me, it was basically the first time in my professional career that I felt like I had failed. You know, everything that I had set my mind to before getting into venture, you know, getting into investment banking, like I achieved those goals. And this was literally the first time that I had totally and completely fell f- flat on my face. And it was not a great feeling. In fact, I was telling Paul, my current partner, how bad it was. And so he basically lived it through me. And you just never know how hard raising capital is until you have to go do it on your own. You know, when you raise capital under the flag of IVP or under the brand of Intel Capital, Intel Capital, you don't raise capital, right? You just take it from the balance sheet from Intel. That's just not fundraising. That is what I call order taking, right? When you're at an established place, fundraising is, you know, having a mission and really selling someone on a vision on yourself and your ability to execute upon that vision. I mean, that's selling, that is fundraising. And to be able to do it with a smile on your face, when it's your 150th time, you know, you have no more money. You're basically back against the wall. If you don't land this capital, it's over, you know, not to mention three kids, a wife and a Palo Alto mortgage. Like, and by the way, you're not making any money because you haven't raised any And what's worse is you have to put money into the fund, your own hard-earned dollar. So it's like the worst of the worst of the worst. And it's hard. It's really hard. And so we just came to a decision that, you know, this wasn't going to happen. And we went our separate ways. And and literally, you know, I was crushed. I I was just absolutely crushed. I I, uh, felt like I totally failed. I didn't really know what I was going to do next. And so what I did next was... I took some time off. I took a month off and I started traveling with my family. And when I came back to the Bay area, I was actually surprised how refreshed I felt. And I had a plan and my plan was to reach out to my entire network to tell them that we were going to call it a quits. And that all this is the funniest part of the story. All I wanted to do was go back to a regular fund and just have a regular VC job. That's all I wanted. That's basically what a year and a half and a ton of travel and fundraising led me to was I just want my old job back. That's all. I'd given it my all and I'm done. And literally a good friend of mine, you know, through all these coffees and lunches that I was having with people, this one lunch I had with a good friend of mine said, Hey, there's an LP that is not going to come into our fund. And I know you said you're not going to go fundraise anymore, but just have, you know, coffee with them and see where it goes. And that led to Conductive Ventures Fund One. 
literally a random introduction by a friend that I've known for at that point, 10 years that liked me. And that random introduction was the start of Conductive Ventures. What a story. Oh my God. So many parts are so relatable, right? (laughs) You know, what's funny is the other thing I learned, okay, that TechCrunch, since you're an avid TechCrunch reader, that Uh it never covers, okay, which actually pissed me off is that you'd, I would often see like other people raising brand new funds. And I'd always wonder, I mean, just natural jealousy would hit like, dude, what does that guy have that I don't have? And literally what TechCrunch doesn't cover is like, oh, this is one of the, you know, one of the partners is like the grandson of the LG family, or this dude's parents in Singapore are like part of the, you know, family that was in the crazy rich Asian movie. So it's like, they never write about that, but there is some kind of family or connection. And literally what I had was, you know, my parents were engineers. My grandparents are poor from Taiwan. Like, dude, I don't have some rich uncle that was like, you know, the chairman of LG or, you know, whatever corporation. And so those are things that you only discover later as to why some of these funds were able to get off the ground because the family staked 50 million in the fund. But like they never write about that in TechCrunch. But that's something that I learned much later in terms of, oh, yeah, I don't have that network. I didn't yeah. come from that family. So, yeah, this is going to be a lot harder. Yeah, I, I'm i going to manifest myself to be you in, in a couple of years because <laughs> all, all your stories and everything, it's kind of where I'm at right now. So for our listeners, you guys can hear a sneak peek. I've been raising money for an Asian American venture fund through Asian Hustle Network. And it just makes sense, right? Because we have a network of 200,000 entrepreneurs around the world and we don't have a fund to invest into ourselves. Similar to you, I'm going out, I'm fundraising, I'm getting my self-esteem crushed. <laughs> you know, I'm just like, what am I doing wrong, right? And I didn't really want to talk about it, but it does help when you have all these connections, right? Because my parents escaped the Vietnam War. My, they grew up in social housing. I grew up in a 600 bedroom house with five siblings that I didn't even know I was poor. <laughs> I was just happy. Yeah. <laughs> and to me being in this position, wanting to get back when everything you just said, it's like, I felt that. Right. And at, not, not to say this is a low point, but at one point I did apply to a 16 Z to be, I'm just like, I just want to be a normal analyst. This is too hard, <laughs> but yeah. I haven't given up. Right. This is the point where I'm just like, I'm just going to continue grinding. And lo and behold, I get introduced you to Abigail. Shout out to Abigail. You know, yeah. and now you're on the podcast. I'm like, this guy's story is giving me a lot of inspiration here because I see a lot of the younger you as me right now. So I hope that the older me is you right now. <laughs> and you know what's what's so funny and maybe odd about my story is had I not quit at the time that I wanted to call it quits, I could have, would have totally missed this opportunity of meeting the LP. It was literally by happenstance that the moment I quit and said, we're not doing Luma Capital Partners anymore. And I came back from my trip and literally he was like the first guy I met within like a week or two. And it just so happened. That was, you know, just, just amazing the timing. So yeah. I mean, I felt like I had quit, but I, in reality, it was like, I didn't. Yeah. I always say those are times where the universe is trying to nudge you on. And yeah. like, it's like, Hey, don't quit. You're meant to do great things. And it's just actually helps you break through. 
right? Yeah. 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 I've been hearing a lot of that type of situation for a lot of founders that come onto our podcast where they're on the verge of quitting their backs against the wall and a miracle happens. That tends to happen a lot whenever you you put yourself out there and you do more and you try to like make things happen, you know, yeah. you just attract positive energy. So I want to hop into the nitty gritties of your fun, right? Yeah. What is the mission of your fun? What was building out that team like? How do you cultivate your team culture? And I just want to hear all about that. So a little bit on uh, conductive ventures. So what we do is we focus on capital efficient, non-traditional entrepreneurs. So let me unpack that a little bit. We have a very explicit and quantifiable definition for how we determine what is or isn't capital efficient. And let me give you an example. If you're a software business, and you are building a, a you know traditional SaaS company. You know generally again these are just general things. If a company has is, is approaching let's say a five million dollar run rate in ARR, hopefully if they're relatively capital efficient, then they've raised or at least not burned through more than five million in ARR. Now there are obviously tons of exceptions to this rule. So for example, if you're a cybersecurity company, it takes a lot of capital to even ship your first product because it just has to work, right? And so there are other businesses that lend itself to some of these more capital efficient models. That was our original thesis going in. Now, my partner, Paul, who came from Kleiner Perkins, obviously another very famous and storied firm on Sand Hill Road and myself from IVP and Intel Capital. We really had this thesis going in that there are a subset of entrepreneurs who actually want to raise sensible rounds and are not trying to raise these massive financing rounds that tend to be pretty dilutive, but they're still building scalable businesses with revenue that we could invest in. Now, let me touch upon the non-traditional part. The non-traditional part is in effect, kind of like what we saw from a lot of these firms, having been on the inside of what stuff, what companies, what which entrepreneurs get chosen ultimately, we really saw, and again, you have to you know take this back to 2004, things have obviously changed in 2022, but I would argue not that much. You know, most of these funds are run like, so there is, this is a statistic, 86% of general partners, these are people who make decisions within the firms are white male. That is not an indisputable fact. That is just where venture is today. And back in 2004, that was 91 or 92%. So you can imagine that the entrepreneurs that they typically funded probably were you know, similar to them, typically white male, like likes like is what's often said. And so when Paul and I kind of grew up, so to speak, in that environment, you know, we started witnessing that, you know, first of all, we're not white male. And second, there's a hustle and a way that I think, you know, a lot of Asian Americans build companies that are quite different than, you know, what I'd like to say is a, you know, a typical entrepreneur might be a six foot tall white guy who went to Stanford or Harvard who's building a company, you know, probably ex McKinsey, Bain, maybe banking, has beautiful presentation skills and a beautiful PowerPoint, but has absolutely built nothing and can tell an amazing story. Like that is often what gets funded. And there's nothing wrong with that because a lot of times those things do work. And, you know, I'm not saying anything here to hate on Sand Hill Road because they've been incredibly successful. Okay. What we noticed as a gap in the market 
is what happens to like the Eric Urenz of the world who founded Zoom, where he's from originally from China. English is not his first language. He didn't go to Harvard, you know, who came from WebEx was starting Zoom, which was kind of like WebEx 2.0 or really where WebEx should have went, couldn't get funding in the first several rounds. Like people, a lot of people don't know Eric's story, but it was incredibly challenging for him to get his seed, Series A and B rounds of funding. It really wasn't until Santi at Emergence funded him that really got him onto the stage. And people will often say, well, Sequoia invested in Zoom. I was like, yeah, in the series D as in dog. So it was much, much later when things were very obvious. That's, I mean, look, if Sequoia backed them in the A, I'd be like, okay, sure. But that's not what happened. So I always tell people like the prototypical entrepreneur that we're looking for is kind of like Eric at Zoom, where it has been challenging for them. They're often, you know, not born here. And if you So when you look at our body of work from fund one and fund two, over half of our portfolio, number one, is not in the Bay Area. The San Francisco Bay Area is by far one of the most expensive places to scale your company. And so that is why we actually went outside of Silicon Valley to go find companies that were basically cheaper and more affordable. And what was also interesting, and again, not something that we had focused or emphasized on, but was sort of a... You know, when we look back at our body of work, we had to, you know, show all these statistics for fund three. Over two thirds of our CEO founders are immigrants or minorities. And it never occurred to Paul and I that we had funded so many immigrants and minorities because, again, our original thesis is not like, hey, we're the immigrant fund. That's, that's not what it was. It was all about capital efficient companies. What happened was when we looked at our data, we we're like, oh, these capital efficient entrepreneurs tend to be minorities and immigrants because they often don't have natural networks into Sand Hill Road. Second, because they don't have natural networks, they have to go raise capital wherever they can just to survive. And because they do that, they then build companies with real revenue quickly because when you don't have access to your series A, your series B, your series C, then you figure out a way to build a really scalable, lasting company. Because if you don't believe my story, you're going to believe my revenue. And it kind of goes back to what I said earlier about how many Asian Americans believe I have a 4.5 GPA weighted. I have a 1600 SAT. Like, why didn't I get into Harvard? And that's how a lot of our entrepreneurs are. Like, they are often not the best storytellers. They often have very heavy accents because they're not born here. And they often are terrible at telling their story. But they have built really interesting companies that if you swapped the Asian immigrant guy or you know black guy out with a six foot tall white guy from Harvard, Stanford, like I think their valuation would quadruple. But that's the niche that we found. And that's what we're continuing to double down on. So it's kind of interesting that I don't think that we stumbled upon this. We had an original early thesis around this. And what has proven out is because we've like the funds are doing so well, these companies are doing so well, it then makes the thesis real. So in the beginning, you have this hypothesis around capital efficient entrepreneurs. 
And people are like, okay, that sounds interesting. And then you can back it up with real numbers and real gains and real cash return. Then that's when the ears perk up and the limited partners are like, okay, I get it now. I believe you. So it's kind of interesting how this thesis has played into, you know, Black Lives Matter over the last couple of years, Asian hate over the last couple of years. But what's so funny is that we did not set out to originally invest in minorities and immigrants. Does that make sense? That makes all the sense. Okay. And that's amazing. It's amazing. Because I've gotten a lot of emails since the announcement that I was like, hey, I know this fantastic immigrant. And I'm like, okay, cool. But that's not, we're not an immigrant fund. Like we're, okay, capital efficiency is the key here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're going to have to snippet that part into our social media. So now people know that you guys, this is your real business model up here. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I, I can see how it gets mistaken at that, right? And I like the fact that you guys target, you know, the entrepreneurs are oftentimes overlooked. And there's a lot of entrepreneurs that are overlooked, right? And to be honest, it's a lot of this are because of our circumstance. We're not grown up to be taught, hey, this is, you're gonna go pitch, you know, you're gonna do this and that. And the idea of pitching is daunting to most Asian Americans or Asians in general, because when the heck do we ever ask our parents for money? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like, hey, dad, uh, do you have a uh, 30 grand? I, you want to invest in me that I could potentially lose? <laughs> no, it doesn't work that way, right? So like, there's a cultural difference already. And I feel like, actually, this is my own opinion too. I feel like it's a great thing that VC firms and VC industry is targeting more cash efficient companies because we're seeing the past couple of years and over evaluations of a lot of startups, right? And it's getting crazy because even a prime example is fast, right? They raise hundreds of millions of dollars, but generate like $50,000 a month or something. Yeah. It's crazy. And I think that it's actually referring back to what it should be, right? A strong business model, right? That's the only way that any investment makes sense. <laughs> like it's basic one-on-one. It's like, does the company make money? You know, Or do you right. guys have plans to make money? Why are you raising so much money? What's the goal, right? And that should be... The primary piece and people are catching on and hence you're able to become so successful your fund one fund two and fund three so hats off to that so out of curiosity as you're raising your first fund how did you build out your team right i could i would imagine it's you and your partner at the very beginning yep. you're like oh no like money are coming in and for you guys who don't know once you raise past the amount of like in in the millions like high millions you're gonna have everything you have to have everything in place like it's even as an investor, if I come to you and be like, is this you or one other person? Like, who's, is this just going to sit there? Like, how's this going to work? Right. And tell us about how you built that team to begin with. Yeah. So, you know, in the first fund, this was really just an initial thesis that Paul and I had. So it was really Paul and I hustling, finding deals, like doing everything. And then as we were, I would say two thirds into fund one, we decided to bring on a a summer intern. This was a guy who went back to business school that previously worked at one of my startups that I had backed at Intel Capital. And he was looking to get into the venture game. And again, most firms on Sand Hill Road do not take summer interns. And Paul and I were like, why not? You know, we should do it. So we brought him in for a summer. His name is Arif and he did a really great job. And what we told Arif was like, hey, look, we're not really looking for a post MBA person. 
you know, we're really looking for an analyst to help us do the stuff that Paul and I don't want to do, like building all the models and stuff like that. We've done that. We don't need to do it again. What we need to do is look at the analysis of the model, not actually build it from scratch. And so we want to hire someone, you know, two years out of undergrad, maybe did banking or consulting and uh, can come in and help us. And so, but we told RF we'd help them out and introduce them to a lot of firms. We did, he got an offer. And then he said, look, I really liked working with you guys over the summer you know, is there an opportunity and maybe a chance that you guys would consider, you know, bring me on. And so Paul and I talked about it, you know, we did think that, you know, he was, he was like a Ferrari and what we needed was like a Honda Accord, but it's worked out great. RF has been, you know, indispensable in many respects. He's done a fantastic job for us. And, you know, we recently promoted him to principal where he's beginning to lead deals, you know, sit on boards and, and all that stuff. And then earlier this year, we brought on Stella who started with us in January. She's also, you know, uh, has to ramp up, really has ramped up really quickly, has a great attitude, has been w- with us for, you know, close to four months now. And, you know, has just been executing really well. So, and then we have some biz dev folks that really help our portfolio companies get intros into, you know, large corporates if they're looking for customer introductions and maybe, you know, JV partnerships and stuff. So I would say, you know, for us, you know, we have a work hard, play hard attitude, you know, it's kind of like all hands on deck. And, you know, an example of that is, you know, when someone's on vacation, there's a deal that needs to be done. It just has to get done. And, you know, I apologize profusely. I've had you know, a number of my vacations, you know, not wrecked, but, you know, you just have to get some stuff done. But I think now that we have more people, the benefit is we can pass things off when we're traveling or happen to be in transit, stuff like that. We are a small, highly leveraged team. And so we all know what each other is doing. We have open calendar policy, you know, so everything from my kids' activities in the afternoons to anything else, you know, that's, that's been one of the huge benefits of, of being a really small, small firm. And, you know, both Paul and I have this really, I'll call it a weird goal because the venture business is such where once you have some modicum of success, there is this natural momentum to go raise tons and tons of money, like ungodly sums of money. And if you're successful and you've proven that you can return money, then yeah, there'll be people who are like, take my money and take my money and take my money. Paul and I have zero aspirations to raise billions of dollars because we don't want to manage a big fund. Like we love venture first and foremost, because we love working with the entrepreneurs, not because, you know, our egos are attached to our assets under management or because we like managing armies of people. No, I'd actually just like to have a really, really, really small firm and invest in a lot of amazing entrepreneurs. And so Paul and I are 100% aligned on keeping our fund sizes small in perpetuity, primarily because we have been at big funds. As I mentioned, Paul's been at Kleiner Perkins. I've been at IVP and Intel Capital. And inevitably, when you get bigger and you have more people, you're going to have more politics. And that just sucks. And it's not fun. And so we want to do everything possible to completely avoid that. And the one way that we've decided to go about that is keep our fund sizes small and small forever. So that makes us a bit weird, actually, I would say in our industry. I, um, I, w- I wouldn't say weird. I want to say it's weird. I say it makes a lot of sense, right? And for our listeners, 
by small we mean like 200 150 million dollars <laughs> it, it's small for for these days i mean again i mean there is a natural tendency to be like hey why don't you raise a billion dollars and yeah zero zero aspirations to do that so let's break it down for our listeners too and i just want them to get an idea what does small mean right so like 200 million dollar fund how many companies can that be invested into? And that should give a clear idea of what small is. Because when we hear that amount from an average person listening to the podcast, like 200 million is small, what in the world? <laughs> what are you guys talking about? I have no idea. Let's we'll, break it down real quick. We'll invest between 15 to 20 core positions. We do fully reserve behind every company. So what that means is when we invest in the Series A or the Series B, right? We've already reserved that they're going to raise a Series C, a Series D, and we want to keep putting money into those companies and support them and protect our pro rata and our position and our ownership levels. So it basically ends up being 15 to 20 core positions in a $200 million fund. And, you know, again, Paul and I have talked about this. I think we'll probably level off somewhere. Our 30,000 foot cruising altitude levels, probably like 250. And then I think we're done. Just keep raising 250, 250, 250. And that will just be us. And we are happy as a clam doing that. Yeah. And thank you for bringing that perspective too. Cause you know, it's just the American mentality of like, go big or go home, keep going big. Right. But like true happiness doesn't come from like an enormous company or raising a lot of money or, you know, having a big exit. It's doing what you like and what you love doing every day. That's really what happiness is, right? 100%. And then, yeah, and at a certain, a certain threshold too, it's like after you make a certain amount of money, it's like life is, life is the same for everyone, right? What is your true purpose? Which is true why? And you have yeah. to think about all those things. Exactly, I, I totally agree. I think it's about being really authentic with who you are. I know that word authenticity has been overused in a lot of ways, but I think it's, a, it's really about thinking what brings you joy, true joy. I think happiness is something that's really temporal. I think joy is something that is more long-term, more everlasting. And so it's really a question of, you know, what do you do in your daily routines that bring you true joy? Yeah, And that's how we think about it. Absolutely. That's a really good point too. And I feel like this part of the podcast definitely resonates with the younger generation for sure, where it's like, we're kind of pivoting, right? I feel like our parents' generation is about survival. Our generation is about making a lot of money. And the younger generation is about purpose, right? And I feel like you're you're telling us what a glimpse of what purpose serves and what purpose is. So thank you so much for that. And Carrie, as we're approaching the end of the podcast, we have two more questions, right? And the next question is, if someone is a young VC looking to start their own fund, what advice would you have for them? Don't do it. Don't do it. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I think, wow, I haven't really thought about that. I will say this. I know what I do is not for everyone. And starting your own fund is not for everyone either. So I think it's, it comes back to being true to who you are. You can be very happy at a fund uh, being a investing general partner. You don't have to strike out on your own in order to make magic happen. But I think for those who do and have decided that that's really what they want to do, then I think the biggest, the most important piece of advice I could give is you have to be different. You know, think of it like a restaurant. There are lots of Chinese restaurants out there, but all of them are kind of different, right? Some specialize in Cantonese food. Some specialize in spicy, you know, you know, Sichuan food. You can't just be yet another of the same kind of restaurant. And hopefully when you're different, you also do it really well. 
So I think that is something that, you know, I think I would say Paul and I have really reached our stride where we know what we do. We really stay in our lane quite a bit and we do it, I think, very differently than other funds. Now, just because you're different doesn't mean that you'll be successful. You could be different and bad, right? I mean, we've all been to different, different restaurants that suck. And we're like, I'm not going to go back to that again. So different doesn't always mean good, but you have to be different. And what you're selling has to resonate as both different and good to LPs when you raise capital. Absolutely. That is really, really good advice. And just imagine from the LP standpoint too, they're probably getting hundreds of hundreds of thousands of pitches every day. <laughs> it's like, how do you stand out? Everyone has their own team, their own structure, their own thesis, but you have to find something that resonates with them. And I think that yeah. you bring up a really good point. So Carrie, how can our listeners reach out to you and find out more about you? Yeah, you can email us at info at conductive.vc. I'm on LinkedIn, so you can reach out to me there. But we're always looking for capital efficient, non-traditional entrepreneurs. And so that's our business. And that's what we love doing. Awesome. Carrie, thank you so much for being on the show today. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here. And uh, thank you so much for being here. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Hey, guys, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to the show. We would like to get to the top 10 on iTunes, so be sure to leave us a five-star review. We release an episode every single Wednesday, so stay tuned. Thank you guys so much.